Hello and welcome to a special and very timely current events edition of Nightlight. And of course, the huge event that is current and that's on everyone's mind and in our desperate prayers is the ongoing Russian invasion of Ukraine. With me on Nightlight today, speaking to us from his home in Kobe, Japan, is Josh DeSantos, and he's going to share some very helpful insights and historical perspectives to help us better understand the situation. Nightlight Insights. Josh, it's so good to have you with us on the show. Last time I saw you, I believe, was in 2017, when my son Makuni and I traveled with you and Professor Koji Soma to Ethiopia and Egypt. And we were about to record a show with you updating us on Professor Soma's groundbreaking mission to show the Japanese that there is much in their religions and culture that is rooted in the God of the Bible. It's a fascinating topic that we'll now have to wait for another show because the topic you're going to talk about today is extremely timely. Josh, I'm just going to turn the show over to you and please go ahead with whatever is on your heart to share. Nightlight, keeping you in tune with the times. Okay, so when this crisis in Ukraine began, talking to some of my friends and relatives here, I realized that uh, not a lot of them understood what was going on in Ukraine. That made me think, oh, maybe there's other people that are in a similar situation. So as I was talking to one of them, I realized that why don't I just share this with anyone who might be interested, and I thought it might be good for your show. Well, of course, they'll be extremely interested. As the old saying goes, uh, I don't know exactly who said it, it says, the first casualty of war is truth. And we're hearing so many different sides to this story. That's why I thought it might help to put together some points all in one place. And I won't be able to cover everything. And, uh, of course, I'm not a professor of history or anything like that. But I have had opportunity to visit Eastern Europe multiple times, mm. including Ukraine. In fact, we were in the city of Lviv, the one that, that now many people are fleeing to. We came in from Poland, which is just across the border there. So it's a multifaceted issue for sure. And so I'll try to hit at least some of the high points. Basically, to look at the current situation, of course, the question comes up, why? And how did it get to this point? In order to do that, we kind of have to rewind a bit, even back to 35 years ago when the uh, USSR began to break up. And even before that, and again, as I say, perhaps some or even many of your listeners might be aware, but uh, when the Soviet Union was forming, the president or the leader at the time was a man named Khrushchev, and he actually came from Ukraine. There's some historical notes about him giving us uh, an autonomy, made it sort of a semi-autonomous region within the USSR, number one, because he was from there, but also to kind of garner their favor so that's how Ukraine was sort of a little unique in the Soviet Union, although it was totally part of the Soviet Union. And an interesting point on that is that after the breakup of the USSR, there was the discussion of what was going to happen with all the nuclear missiles that were distributed around the world or in different locations by the Soviet Union. 
And there were agreements made between the U.S. and NATO and the former USSR with Russia. And they brought the weapons back into the main country, Russia. But until that time, Ukraine was the third largest nuclear power in the world. There were so many nuclear rockets in Ukraine. So Ukraine was intimately a part of the USSR. So when the breakup of the Soviet Union came, again, let's look at just before that breakup, a little bit of the history between the U.S. and I think everyone knows NATO was a result from World War II and the North Atlantic Treaty Organization developed to sort of hold in check the Soviet Union from spreading. At that time, of course, the Soviet Union had an, had an ideology of what we could call evangelization. They were spreading their doctrine. So in order to guard against that, the U.S. created the North Atlantic Treaty Organization with a few founding members. The Soviets, in turn, built the Berlin Wall, and all of that happened. So when the USSR broke up, as I mentioned, they brought all the weapons out of Ukraine and any other former Soviet territories brought them back into Russia. The Secretary of State of the United States gave assurances to the then Russian president that in return for giving East Germany back to West Germany, which we now, you know, again combined called Germany after the coming down of the wall, that NATO would not expand at all. Not one inch was the term used. Apparently, there were no like legal documents signed, but there are plenty of memos that you can see written that affirm that NATO said it would not go any further. It's never completely dark when you're listening to Nightlight. Right now, I'd like to pause and inject something for the listeners. I'd like to refer to the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, as as I assume most of your listeners are very familiar with the Bibles, in the book of Daniel, we get a vision that Daniel had of the king of Babylon, the head of gold, and the rest of the body on the statue. Of course, Daniel has to go in and explain this to King Nebuchadnezzar, and He is the king of gold, which was very pleasing to Nebuchadnezzar. But later on, in later chapters in Daniel, we see that God gave Daniel more specifics about Babylon and the other kingdoms of the world. In that revelation, they were depicted as beasts of prey or all kinds of things. So It's interesting to reflect on that when we talk about the current world situation. I have to put in a, I don't know if you'd call it a disclaimer here, that when I'm going over these things, I don't in any way mean to take one side or the other, because I think, as we can see from the book of Daniel, that the way God sees things and the way we see things is often very different. There's no indication from what Daniel had in his revelations that God really saw any of those world powers as positive things, although he uses them. Am I making myself clear? For sure. Okay. So when I talk about these things, 
I'm just going to try to lay out the facts. So the facts are that that after their breakup of the USSR, the U.S. had basically given a promise that that NATO would not move any closer to the Russian border. And the reason that it's important, we can see in today's situation in Ukraine, why the U.S. Uh, refused and NATO refused to do the no-fly zone, which the Ukrainian president requested, is because then it puts the American army directly in touch with the Russian army. And as folks may remember, over the Syrian crisis that happened a few years back, there was extreme tension because Russian fighters were in the air at the same time as American fighters, and they had to make a very clear distinction that there was to be no interaction between them. The reason for that is when one NATO nation is attacked, then all NATO nations come to their aid. So this leads to the current situation in Ukraine. I'll come back to this as to why does it seem that Russia chose now to make this move. When the USSR, or I'll just say Russia, agreed to pull back from East Germany, Americans were surprised or even shocked. Because until that point, although the USSR was crumbling from within, there was a constant detente between the two because the only recourse was nuclear war. And that's where the uh, doctrine, what they call the MAD doctrine, mutually assured destruction, came about. So the US and NATO wasn't poking the bear, as we say, because uh, the only retaliation that the bear had was nuclear. But after the breakup of the USSR, that changed the landscape drastically. One of the next things was that Poland became part of NATO. Now, this was huge. As I had mentioned in the beginning, I have made several trips to Poland as well. I want to interject something here that I really learned in my trips to Poland and to other Eastern European areas was that growing up in the U.S., World War II was a landmark, but it wasn't so much a wound in my generation, at least. It was a landmark that America moved forward from. Here in Asia, World War II is also something that was in the past. There's still some repercussions, especially here in Japan, but generally the attitude is it's over, let's move on. But I was quite surprised when I got to Poland and the Eastern European, you know, that there was wound. And the wound, in some cases, wasn't really fully healed. Or if the wound had healed, there was the scar. That was very <laughs> surprising and impressive for me. The research that, as you mentioned at the beginning of the program, I've been doing with Dr. Soma has put us in touch with some Jewish communities as we are studying traces of uh, ancient you know, Jewish tribes and travelers. And it's also put us in touch with some... Okay, when uh, Vladimir Putin mentioned the reasons he's going into Ukraine, he used the word denazification. Now, that sounds like a pretty strong word, especially to me as an American. However, I have to tell you, my impression when I was there 
in Eastern Europe is that there is definitely a right-wing, what's the word, political entity still obviously remaining in Eastern Europe. It's an interesting mix between this, yeah, really, a bit of a Nazi hangover along with anti-Soviet hangover. I don't know if hangover is the proper word to use, but interesting that going to the current situation now when President Putin mentioned the denazification of Ukraine, I'll get into that in a moment when we talk more about the current situation, but this brings out the point of what's really going on and what happened during the time when Ukraine was part of the USSR as often happens when world powers, dominant powers, have large areas going back throughout history, is they move people around. And this is what happened in Ukraine. A large portion of eastern Ukraine, the Donetsk, the Donbass region, there are Russians who were brought in during the USSR times. The people who are there now this is their culture, their language. And although you know they are Ukrainian in a sense, they're really Russian by culture. This is something to remember when we get into more details about Ukraine in itself. So I was talking about the expansion of NATO. I think there were five members, five to seven members in the beginning. And then as the Soviet Union broke up, they had about 20, expanded to 20. And right now, I believe there's 29 NATO members, and basically that not moving one inch is not what happened. From a Russian perspective, you could see that NATO has inched closer and closer to Russia. Even the night can be bright when you switch on your nightlight. Now, I want to jump back a moment to, again, that breakup of the Soviet Union. At that time, as we do remember, the Russia was was the other superpower in the world. So when that broke up, America became the sole superpower in the world. And that was uh, back in the end of the 1980s and the 1990s. Looking at what happened in the 1980s, again, much of it was to stop the spread of USSR communism and Chinese communism. Of course, the earlier to that was the Vietnam War and the whole Southeast Asian situation. But during the Reagan era, there was a strong spread of democracy theme, which has sort of died down over the last 10 to 15 years, even within the last five or six years there in Europe. We've had some more right-wing type governments coming in power in different countries. Even there now recently in Africa, there's some, you know, step backs from democracy. So it's kind of almost the rethinking of what is democracy exactly? And is democracy the U.S. form of democracy or is this form of democracy the same as that form of democracy? So there's been a pause and it's interesting that this is taking place at this time. I don't know if I'm making myself so clear, but with NATO expansion coming on and on, let me switch back over a little bit more to Ukraine. Ukraine was basically supposed to be a neutral power, a neutral buffer between Russia and Europe. And the reason that's important 
the other countries that are nearby the Russian border are small. And Russia also has a piece, I think it's called Kaliningrad, on the other side above Germany, a little piece of uh, Europe, that, uh, that, you know, section of Europe themselves. So there wasn't too much concern about Estonia, Latvia, those countries in that area. But Ukraine, a little bit about Ukraine. Now, Ukraine is the largest country in Europe next to France. I think Ukraine is actually larger than France. Again, it was the third largest nuclear power in the world until they returned the missiles. It is one of the world's largest wheat exporters. So everyone's concerned what kind of crisis this might happen in the wheat markets worldwide. But more particularly, it is a huge transporter of energy. The pipelines that come through Russia into Europe, many of them, they go right through Ukraine. Uh, You know, they say if you want to find out what's really going on, follow the money. The Russian bear, one thing about a bear, a bear has a lot of power. There's a lot of power in Russia. In fact, Russia is, again, this is all common knowledge, Russia is one of the leading oil producers in the world. Also, Russia is the leading natural gas producer in the world. And the second largest field that they've discovered is in the Persian Gulf between the border between Iran and Qatar. So this brings in an entirely different perspective to not only the NATO push, where Russia feels threatened by the fact that if Ukraine becomes a NATO power, then they could possibly have nuclear weapons installed there facing to Russia, which they have refused. They said that's not an option. But there's also one thing that so far hasn't been talked so much about in the media is where's the money? Now, there's not only the gas pipelines that come through Ukraine, which brings great revenue to Ukraine. And that was one of the reasons why Nord Stream 2, Ukraine was not excited about Nord Stream 2, because that revenue they were hoping would go through Ukraine. But Ukraine still gets a huge amount of their uh, foreign currency comes through the oil going through the pipeline. Lighting your path through the end times. You're with Nightlight. Another factor that hasn't been talked about much recently because of the green, you know, the push for green technology, cleaner fuel and what have you, is that Ukraine has one of the world's largest coal reserves. And those coal reserves are in the Donbass region. So this is a big point when it comes to power and money. Power, I mean energy, energy and money. There's a vast amount of coal and it's in the eastern region of Ukraine. And the eastern region of Ukraine is also the most industrial region of Ukraine. And that was goes back to when the USSR was in power. It brought Russians in to run the run all the machinery and industry. So when we have the Donbass region conflict going on, so much of it has to do with energy. Nightlight. You're listening to an international edition of Nightlight, shining God's love light to the world. Going back a little more to NATO, 
In 2004, there was what was called the Orange Revolution. Uh, Ukraine has been tottering back and forth in its politics ever since it became an independent uh, country after the breakup of the Soviet Union. So in 2004, the Orange Revolution, which is well understood to be backed by American interests, basically the CIA. All of this, again, you can find documents to confirm this. Then in 2008 in Romania, there's something called the Bucharest Summit. I just listened to a very interesting talk by a man, a professor from the University of Chicago by the name of Mirsham. You can find it on YouTube. It's called Why Ukraine is the West's Fault. And he talks for about 45 minutes. And it's a very interesting talk. He gave it in 2015. And this was after 2014 and the annexation of the Crimean Peninsula by Russia. He explains in more detail about the Ukrainian political situation, what happened in 2004, how there was almost a civil war, uh, how a pro-Russian government was installed for a while. Then recently in 2014, called the Maidan, the Revolution of Dignity, it's called. The Maidan Revolution was not recognized by Russia. And that, again, was backed by the West to remove the pro-Russian government. In 2014, this, what the Russia calls as coup d'etat, Russia refused to recognize that government. And this is the government that is, through presidential elections, is still in power now. So there's a lot of strings going on here. There's not just the military situation of the security of, of Russian borders, but there's also the energy situation. You may remember that just this January, the European Union has agreed that natural gas will be considered as a green energy. So this makes the Russian natural gas fields much more of a uh, interest much more of a big apple i guess you could say like a candle in the night it's night light so there's so many things going on here this is even without talking about how all of this is taking place right at the beginning of the world starting to crawl out of the post-pandemic situation uh, that's a whole nother subject in itself that I won't get into in this talk. But a lot going on right now, a lot going on in Crimea, in, in Ukraine. Speaking of Crimea, I have a couple of relatives that did a very interesting series of articles on what happened after the Crimea. Now, the Crimea is Russia's Black Sea fleet. It would be like Hawaii being taken over by a foreign power. Hawaii is a huge naval base. And so it's just not going to happen. After the 2014 coup d'etat, as Russia calls it, now there was no way that Russia was going to allow Crimea to fall into Ukrainian government hands. So then when Obama became president, Hillary Clinton became the secretary of state between 2009 and 2013. And during that period, uh, there was unrest cropping up in Russia. I don't think we'll have time on this talk to get into all the details about the Russian history that's taken place since the breakup of the Soviet Union. Very interesting, though. But um, 
It is well known, again, that while Hillary Clinton was the Secretary of State, the United States and the West was doing what they could to weaken President Putin's reign, hold on Russia. And again, without saying who's right, who's wrong, these are just facts. The reason I mention my relatives in this series of articles they did it was covered by the Washington Post, actually. It was called Vlad's Revenge. And this kind of led to some of the things that happened when Donald Trump was elected about did Russia help Trump get elected? And you, you remember that entire debacle that took place. They wrote an article, a series of articles, explaining how Putin understood, I'll just say Hillary in this case to make it simple, Putin understood that Hillary wanted him out. And it pissed him off, pardon my language. And he decided, he told his friends that whatever happens, Hillary will not be president, the next president of the United States. Not so much that Trump would get in, but whoever got in, it would be Hillary. All of this builds up to how Russia, see, after, after the breakup of the Soviet Union, and especially after Putin took over, they tried the let's be friends approach. And Russia, again, however you describe democracy, Russia took on what it called a form of democracy within its own country. It was even welcomed into the G7 and it became G8 for a short time. So Russia sort of tried the appeal of blending in with the West, being more European. Again and again, uh, things failed and didn't go well. You know, you can blame who or whatever, but it really just seems like by the time Hillary Clinton got in, the idea was let's just get rid of Vladimir Putin. So in revenge, that's what their series of articles was about. In fact, they won uh, an award for it, was uh, that Putin said, no, 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 it's not going to happen. And going now to the current situation in Ukraine, as Russia was building up troops on the border and people started to get nervous, there was the talk of negotiations going on. You know, a truth was, is always the first casualty, so we don't know how much truth was really there. But the impression was given that Russia was willing to listen, was willing to talk. And you may recall they put forward in paper some requests that were, even before they arrived, they were already, we know what Russia's going to ask, and they were just blown off, we reject it. And whether you think that that was just a ploy by Russia to make it look like they were trying but to make peace, but actually they had war in their heart, this could possibly be true. But on the other side, if Russia, in fact, Putin hadn't decided, hadn't decided yet, the fact that NATO and the United States just blew off his security concerns. You know, it goes back to what I said earlier about in the book of Daniel, you know, governments are always trying to, the powers that be are always trying to bring up all their great points and how wonderful they are, but the way God sees them is very different from what how I see it. We really have two beasts that are brawling it out here with each other. Nightline. Nightline. You know, back when America became that only superpower, there were some doctrines being flo floated around was, could the American military be strong enough 
to fight two major wars at the same time. I don't know if you've heard this before. And it was tossed around. And of course, after World War II, we all know Eisenhower's speech on the industrial military uh, complex and his warning to guard against it. And his suggestion, being the supreme commander in Europe at that time, his suggestion was 500,000 man army was enough to defend the United States. Of course, that was back in the 1950s. But that was not listened to, and the military complex continued. And especially after the breakup of the USSR, the amount of money that is spent by the United States, I think everyone knows, is just it, it surpasses everyone else combined. So we're getting into a situation where here's some thoughts that I have. Is the West actually kind of baiting Russia to go with this, thinking that let's weaken Russia now so that we can concentrate more on China? Or is, in fact, Russia showing its teeth and saying, thus far and no further. Signs of the Times. Two more points I'd like to kind of finish off with. One is, even before the invasion, the uh, EU leader, Ursula, I'm sorry, I can't pronounce her last name, she got up in a speech. This is before the invasion, before they thought, as the way that, the way the media put before they thought Putin had made up his mind yet. She spoke that just the fact of all these troops on the border threatening Europe was creating a new world international order. And I thought, that's an interesting statement. We've heard that before. Then, just before Russia moved into Ukraine, we all recall that President Putin made a trip to the Olympics just before the opening in China and met Xi Jinping. He said something afterwards that I thought was unusual statement. And usually, you, you know, I can say, I would safely assume that when Vladimir Putin makes a statement for international press, he's thought of what he's saying. So when he finished his meeting, there was just a short comment. He said something about he believes China is the only nation on earth that will someday rival the United States. And I thought, that's an interesting comment for the world's second largest, or really the world's largest nuclear power to say that China would someday, now whether he did that to just reflect a little away from the situation of what he was going to do in Ukraine, or was that some kind of a message to the Western world that China is up on its way? I don't know right now, this is just my own two cents, whether the West has trying to bait Russia into getting into this whole Ukrainian mess, or whether Russia and the Eastern countries have just decided that, okay, maybe it is time for a new world order. The light is always on with Nightlight. All right. And I always like to end any discussion. You know, we didn't get into why this all happens right now after this Corona thing is just starting to die down. And it's just a good time for the world to pick itself up again. But 
it's hard to not notice that all of this certainly sees, seems to tie in again, going back to the book of Daniel. Okay, let me finish off with this. You know, so many of the prophecies regarding the end of time are really difficult to understand, honestly. And in fact, uh, it makes me think of something that Jesus said that he said, I tell you now so that when it comes to pass, you may know. And a lot of times prophecies like that, that we don't really understand it completely until it's already been fulfilled. And we look back and say, oh, but what it does is it pricks our interest and it, you know, keeps our eye open to what's going on. Just to wrap it up, you know, the end time is such a complex uh, subject. I often think that, uh, you know, all the focus on Armageddon, you know, what's happening in, in the final time, you know, the final the temple in Jerusalem and all these things, sometimes in focusing too much on certain parts of the end time, we kind of miss the fact that the end time is not actually a Christian event. It's not actually a, you know, Jewish prophets prophesied event. It's a world event. <laughs> the end of time is a world event. And in the book of Daniel, we, we do see all kinds of wars or troubles going on that culminate finally in what we call the, the Battle of Armageddon. I'm not saying that this, this particular Ukraine issue is one of those wars, but things are building up, building up, building up. And it just amazes me that God in his foresight and wisdom has given us that pre-warning and that pre-vision to know so that we can be confident and we know that God is in control. We don't have to worry. We don't have to fear. One of the positive things that came out of the pandemic was it made people stay home more. It made people get closer to their families and their neighbors. And that was just the slowing down. A lot of comments about that was one of the positive things that happened from the pandemic. So looking now at this situation in Ukraine, it's a disaster. You know, looking at all these pictures, uh, you know, war is never a positive thing. However, is there something that we can see in it where is the Lord giving us, again, a little bit of a here it comes, here it comes, here it comes, step by step. And not only for those of us who know somewhat our Bible, but those who don't. Uh, is it a little step in that direction to prepare everybody to be more aware of the situations are not getting better, they're getting worse? And with that said, I'd like to leave on a, a line from Martin Luther. Apparently, this is the quote, was that even if I knew the world was going to end tomorrow, I'd still pay my bills and plant my apple tree, which means to me, he's still going to trust the Lord. He knows God's in control, and he's just going to continue with his life. And I think that's the real key that we need to keep in mind with all of this craziness going around. Thank you. We have a guest tonight on Nightlight. Thank you so much, Josh. And we look forward to having you back with us on the show soon with an update on the research of Professor Soma, as well as a life after death experience that you wanted to share. Well, needless to say, we need to desperately pray for the situation in Ukraine, for the situation not to escalate, for inner peace for all of God's children 
who are caught up in this conflict or are fearful that it could even escalate into the unthinkable nuclear war. Well, thank God we have the sure word of Bible prophecy to act as a roadmap through these troubled times. And let me close with this little gem of wisdom from Charles Spurgeon. He wrote, The affairs of this world are not under the control of men, however much they may imagine that they are. There is a supreme authority who rules, overrules, and works all things according to his own beneficent will, whatever men may desire or determine to do. And let me go out by playing you this meditation from Faith's Checkbook. God bless you and keep you safely. Bye for now. Nothing to alarm us. But go thou thy way till the end be, for thou shalt rest and stand in thy lot at the end of the days. Daniel chapter 12, verse 13. We cannot understand all the prophecies, but yet we regard them with pleasure and not with dismay. There can be nothing in the Father's decree which should justify alarm in his child. Though the abomination of desolation be set up, yet the true believer shall not be defiled. Rather shall he be purified and made white and tried. Though the earth be burned up, no smell of fire shall come upon the chosen. Amid the crash of matter and the wreck of worlds, the Lord Jehovah will preserve his own. Calmly resolute in duty, brave in conflict, patient in suffering, let us go our way, keeping to our road, and neither swerving from it nor loitering in it. The end will come. Let us go our way till it does. Rest will be ours. All other things swing to and fro, but our foundation standeth sure. God rests in his love, and therefore we rest in it. Our peace is and ever shall be like a river. A lot in the heavenly Canaan is ours, and we shall stand in it, come what may. The God of Daniel will give a worthy portion to all who dare to be decided for truth and holiness as Daniel was. No den of lions shall deprive us of our sure inheritance. <laughs>